Leviticus 4, 1 through 12, and then Leviticus 5, 1 through 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the, for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the, before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And all of the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver. And he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. And now chapter 5, 1 through 6. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he is sin, seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bury his iniquity, or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he, and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness or whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. The grass withers and the flower fades. Well, thanks to Steve for reading the first uh, few sections of our sermon text this morning, setting the stage, wetting our appetite uh, to understand uh, more fully this chapter and a half of Leviticus. Uh, now we're going to read a little bit more of Leviticus chapter 4. If you'll notice as we read, Leviticus chapter 4 actually describes the same sacrifice four times. So we had the first iteration of the sacrifice described for us. Now as we read the next two, beginning here in verse 13, listen for what is the same. Listen for what is different. 
what changes as we go through the, these descriptions of this sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 4. So this is again on page 82 in your pew Bible. And after we conclude, I invite you to keep your Bible open because to understand this sacrifice, we'll have to refer to the text throughout our time together. But hear the word of the Lord beginning in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13, and we'll read through verse 26. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out of the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bowl, as he did with the bowl of the sin offering, so he shall do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bowl outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bowl. It is a sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hands on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you have revealed to us that which we ought and need to know, that we may be brought near to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that as he is the truth, that you would sanctify us in him, the truth. For indeed, your word is truth. Indeed, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so in him, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. At 1955, at the University of Cambridge, a small group of Christian students invited the great evangelist Billy Graham to come and address the university assembly. And immediately, letters to the editor, well, if you remember what a letter to the editor is, letter to the editors began pouring in, criticizing the university for allowing Billy Graham to speak. They said, we don't need any of this fundamentalist Christian stuff. That was a paraphrase. Well, Graham uh, read, or was told of these letters to the editor. He, he, he was concerned. He was worried that he would receive a, a poor reception by these intellectual listeners. So he decided he would preach academic 
intellectual high-level uh, talks to the University of Cambridge students. And 2,000 students showed up, like 25% of the entire enrollment. For an entire week, he was going to speak to them. And, and Monday night and, and Tuesday night, he gave these high intellectual talks, highfalutin sermons, and nothing happened. No response from the congregation. Dead silence. It appears that Billy Graham's talks were a dud. And remember, this is the greatest, perhaps, evangelical preacher of the 20th century. A failure. So on Wednesday, Graham decided to throw his notes away. And he said simply, let me tell you what I know about the blood of Jesus Christ. Now in that congregation that day was another great 20th century preacher, Richard Lucas. And he wrote, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with a Regis professor of divinity on that side and the chaplain of a college on the other side, the future bishop. Both of these are very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night and began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible. He talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were totally embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked, everything they dreaded. At the end of the sermon, Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to say, stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And to the surprise of the people sitting on either side of me that night, 400 young men and women stayed behind. But what was it about that sermon with, with blood flowing all over the place that made such an impact on these young students? It wasn't just because the preacher's name was Billy, as wonderful as that is. No, no there was something else. And it's actually what our sermon text is all about this morning. If you noticed, as we read, blood was flowing all over the place. But through that blood, something wondrous was taking place. What was it? Well, let's find out. We're going to use the same three questions that you've been using throughout your study of Leviticus here. We'll begin by asking, what is happening in this text? What's going on here? And very simply, you could say animals are being slaughtered. Animals are being offered to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 4 goes through the sacrifice, as I mentioned, four times. And these repetitions are based on the identity of the one offering the sacrifice. So we had read for us, beginning in verse 3, if an anointed priest sinned. That is another way of referring to the high priest. Verse 13, if the whole congregation sinned. Verse 22, if a leader sinned. Verse 27, if a commoner in the people of Israel sinned. So we'll look at this first description, that for an anointed priest, to get a, get a feel for what happens with the sacrifice. Begins by the priest selecting a bowl without blemish in verse 3. He brings to the entrance to the pretended meeting in verse 4. He lays his hands upon the animal. He kills the animal. Then he takes the blood of the animal and sprinkles it on the veil in the holy place that, that separates it from the most holy place. If you remember the layout of the tabernacle, uh, the central uh, interior space was three times as deep as it was wide. The first two-thirds was the 
holy place. Then you had a veil separating the most holy place, which contained the ark, or the ark of the Lord, or the covenant of the Lord. So on that veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, the priests would sprinkle blood. They'd also sprinkle blood on the horns of the altar of incense, which was in that first room, the holy place, on the horns of the altar, representing all of the altar in verse 7. They would pour out the rest of the blood at the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, the altar for burnt or ascension offerings. Then he would take the fat of the animal, the, the best parts of the animal, and offer them to the Lord, burning them in verses 8 and 9. And he would take the rest of the animal, the entire corpse, outside the camp in verses 10 and 11, and burn it there entirely. So that's what's going on here. But, but what's, what's really going on? There are several things we can note as we take a look at this sacrifice. Of course, we have an animal that is without blemish. We take an animal that is without fault, that is perfect. That is blameless. We see in, in this text the need for blood to, to cleanse this space. The, the veil of the, of the tabernacle separating the holy place from the most holy place was, was representing uh, the very entrance to the presence of God. As, as behind that, the, the glory cloud would descend and, and God's presence would dwell there in a special place. Even the very entrance to the presence of God was in need of cleansing by blood. We'll see why in a minute as we see why we have to offer these sacrifices. But of course this is connected to something else we notice in this text, the need for death. That an animal must be killed for this sacrifice to take place. We see also of course the taking outside of the camp of the corpse of the sacrifice, that place of, of separation, of, of disposal, of disgrace, of, be, of being cut off from the people of God. Now remember what I said, this first uh, sacrifice we'll use a, as a representative example of understanding all the sacrifices that take place in this chapter. When it comes to the, the text that I read beginning in verse 13, now we're at a, a sacrifice for the sin of the congregation. If the people of God as a whole sin against the Lord, and we can think of times in the history of Israel when this took place, can't we? Whether it was uh, the sin uh, of refusing uh, to trust the Lord as they were to go into the promised land, or as they were once in the promised land, and they uh, together sinned by, by building false sacrifices, all sorts of things, all ways in which the people of God would sin. The ceremony is the same beginning in verse 13, except that the elders now representing the people would come and bring, lay their hands on the, on the bowl, verses 14 and 15. Then the priest would go about his business. So we have the high priest, we have the congregation. Now we have if a leader of the congregation sins, beginning in verse 22. And there you may have noticed that things began to change a little bit more. Some of the details were different. Some were omitted. Uh, some different animals were offered. He brings a male goat, not a bull. He brings it to any priest that is on duty, not the anointed priest, verse 25. His, the blood of his sacrifice is not brought into the holy place, but is merely poured out at the base of the burnt offering altar, verse 25. 
And after the fat is offered to the Lord in verse 26, now the rest of the animal is not brought outside the camp. In fact, chapter 6, verse 26 tells us that the priest eats it. And this makes sense. Uh, if, you've been re- if you read through Leviticus, you know that, that the, after the sacrifices are offered to the Lord, the rest of the animals and grains are part of uh, the Levites' A compensation, if you will. It's part of, of how they are provided for as people that don't have their own land in the promised land. Now, it would have been very strange for the priest to eat the, the animal of his own sacrifice or the sacrifice for the entire congregation because he was implicated in that sin. It'd be like he were gaining uh, compensation from his own sin. If the animal was to represent him, one commentator said that would be like being a cannibal, eating the, eating the, the, the payment of your own sacrifice. But now that it is the sin of another, he eats it himself. The process for a commoner, the fourth category in this chapter, high priest, congregation, anointed leader, now commoner, begins in verse 27. And here... It is the same for that of a leader, except now it's not a male goat that is brought. It's a female goat, verse 28, or a female lamb, in verse 32. But even if a commoner could not afford a female goat or a lamb, he or she was not without hope. If you flip over to chapter 5, we had read the first six verses. Verse 7, though, tells us, that if this person cannot afford a lamb, that he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. No one is excluded. If you cannot afford one of the larger animals, that doesn't mean you are not does it mean you were without hope when it comes to the sacrifice? You may wonder why two animals. It says one is for a sin offering, one is for a burnt offering. Basically, the larger animals were, were large enough to provide the fat for the Lord and the blood for the altar. But with a smaller animal, you would need two. And then one was given uh, for the fat for the Lord's burnt offering. The other was given for the blood of what the text calls a sin offering. But even if you couldn't afford that, even if you couldn't afford the two birds, even then you are not without hope. For the text tells us beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5, if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. A tenth of an ephah. That's also known as an omer. It's like three and a half pounds. You go to the grocery store, a five pound sack of flour is a few dollars. And imagine, you know, a little more than half of that. Just a few dollars. Even the poorest of the poor were included in the sin offering of this chapter. It was given as a text, as we read, no oil or frankincense to, to distinguish it from the previous offerings we've read about. A handful is burnt as a memorial offering. A memorial offering being a, a, a prayer to God to remember me. In this case, a prayer of confession to the Lord. That handful was burnt, and then the rest was saved for the Lord's food offerings. Chapter 5, verse 13. You may wonder why the rest of the flour was not burnt at that time, but was burned 
uh, with the Lord's other offerings. Well, if you want to do an experiment this afternoon, go home and try to set three pounds of flour on fire without oil. I guarantee you, you won't have much success. So that's why it was offered with the other sacrifices to the Lord. But as we, as we go through these chapters and a half, and we read of these sacrifices, what, what are they teaching us? What are they showing us? We, of course, have noticed the progression of, of order of high priest, congregation, leader, commoner. We see the progression of the seriousness of the offense. That when someone who is given authority over the people of God sins, it is a grave matter. There are some sins that are worse than others. What does Jesus say about Judas? The one who has betrayed me has committed the greater sin. Uh, Scripture tells us that, that when one who is given authority over the people of God sins, it is a grave situation. Not, not all sins are equally bad. But all require sacrifice. First, we saw, as we remarked earlier, the laying on of hands onto the animal. Something is evidently being transferred to the animal when the hands are laid upon it. We'll see more on this in a minute. We also, of course, again and again saw the, the principle of representation, didn't we? The priests. Sin brings guilt on the people, chapter 4, verse 3 tells us. The elders represent the people, verse 15. The, the priest represents the people before God, verse 16. And the animals or grain represent the sinner. This is what the laying on of hands represents. The transferal of one's guilt to this animal. Now this brings us to our second point this morning. Why are these people offering this sacrifice? For the first three sacrifices in Leviticus, you, you kind of have to uh, read between the lines or read elsewhere in Scripture to understand why these sacrifices are being given. The text doesn't explicitly tell us. But for the first time now, the, the, the text tells us why these sacrifices are given. And it's plain. I mean, it's very plain. Again and again, the text tells us, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, if the priest sins, if he brings guilt on the people, verses 13 and 14, if the congregation sins, if they break the commandment of the Lord, if they realize their guilt, Verses 22 and 23, when the leader sins, doing anything by the Lord's commandment, he ought not to be done. When he realizes his guilt, same thing, verse 24, it is a sin offering. Verses 27 and 8, if any one of the common people sins, did you get it? When people sin, they incur guilt. An objective stance of having guilt laid upon you because of what you have done. Guilty people need sacrifice. They need the sprinkling of blood. We, we saw the sprinkling of water this morning as a, as a symbol, as a sign and a seal, as Billy explained, of cleansing. Guilty people need to be cleansed. They need to be purified. They need to have their objective guilt removed. Hence the name of this sacrifice. 
the sin or purification offering. The traditional name is sin offering. This is a a plausible translation of the Hebrew phrase. But later in chapter 5 and later in Leviticus, the same same sacrifice is given for instances in which someone has not sinned, but is merely ceremonially unclean. When the problem is not guilt, but, but ritual impurity. The consequence is not guilt, but uncleanliness. And thus they need to be purified. So perhaps it's better to call this sacrifice the purification offering, covering the broader use of the sacrifice. And if there's any Hebrew scholars out there, you know that those two words are related anyway, so it makes sense to call it the sin or the purification offering. But Of course, even the connection between those two words teaches us something, doesn't it? That, that a sin requires a purification. When we break faith with God, when we transgress his law, when the text tells us we we do any of the things that the Lord has told us not to be done, when we disgrace his honor, when we sin, it is dirty. It makes us polluted. It is a stain. It is a a filth. It it is grime. It, It is the marring of God's law, his good creational order, the way in which he has placed his name upon us. It's the blood the blood of shame and guilt and dishonor and disgrace. Friends, sin desperately needs cleansing, needs purification. It is ugly. It is foul. It is marred. Sin needs purification even more than than ritual uncleanliness does. Probably notice that our text mentions a certain kind of sin. For instance, in chapter 4, verse 2, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands, you may wonder what that means as you read about unintentional sins throughout this text. Verse 13 repeats the phrase. Verse 22, verse 27 the law of the Lord described basically two kinds of sin, two categories of sin. That which is intentional and that which is unintentional. Intentional is in Hebrew that sin that is with a high hand. So in a case in which someone knows the law, knows you should not commit that sin, and yet chooses to do so anyway. That, that, that would be rebellion against God, what the text calls high-handed sin. When the sin and purification offering is described in Numbers chapter 15, Moses makes clear in verse 30 that the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord and shall be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be cut off. The iniquity shall be on him. So that's intentional sin. That's, that's not the sort of sin described in this chapter. The person who sins in that way was, is cut off from the people of the Lord, If he was not executed for his sin, he was sent outside the camp and he would rely upon the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement mentions in Leviticus chapter 16, we'll get to that in a few weeks, 16 verse 16, sins of rebellion are provided for on that day if, of course, the person is penitent and confesses his sin as chapter 16 verse 29 mentions. Those are high-handed rebellious sins. But this text is dealing with unintentional sins. Sins with a medium or low hand, as you will. 
These are sins done out of weakness. These are sins done out of ignorance. These are, these are sins done out of accident, even. Frankly, brothers and sisters, the sort of sins that you and I commit each and every day. Sometimes we don't even realize it. We've given examples of this in chapter 5, which Steve also read for us. Chapter 5, verse 1, seems to describe a sin done in weakness. There's a witness to something that has happened, and out of, out of fear or intimidation or whatever, he just declines to testify in court. doesn't have the internal courage or fortitude to do so. Weakness, in other words. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5 dealt with those who are unclean and either don't realize it or forget it. This thus the need for purification that we described earlier. Chapter 5, verse 4, someone utters a, a rash vow. You know, not a hard-hearted, intentional, rebellious sin, but a, but a quick word or oath in the heat of the moment that is then later either forgotten or thought to be unwise and therefore not followed through on. It may have been wise not to follow through on it, but it was a sin to commit uh, the oath or the rash vow in the first place. We sin, brothers and sisters, sometimes simply in weakness. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, we know that which we are to do, but, but sometimes the flesh doesn't cooperate. We sin in ignorance. We do not know the law of the Lord well, and so we sin without realizing it. We sin in accident. Scripture will tell of times when someone you know, you know, does something that causes the life of someone else to be taken. Not accidentally, but yet guilt is still incurred when you take a life, even if it is accidentally. We commit sins because we're pressured by our peers or by our family, and so we sin in weakness. There's, of course, no excuse, which is why this sacrifice is provided. But the main point of this chapter, of course, is not sin, the main point of this chapter is that there is a remedy to those sorts of sins that each one of us commits each and every day. When that sort of sin occurs, three things must happen. They're described for us in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. What does that say? First, he realizes his guilt and confesses. He brings before the Lord a, a confession of sin. He admits his sin. It has been made known to him or it is made clear to him. His heart is engaged as he offers this sin prayer, this confessional prayer. Second, what verse 5 calls for us a compensation for this, sorry, verse 6, a compensation for this sin that is all committed. Whereas the footnote has it, a, a guilt penalty is offered. That was our entire first point. The sacrifice is described in verse 4. And then, thirdly, verse 6. Perhaps the most important thing I'll say all morning. Atonement is offered. Atonement is made. Did you notice throughout the, the chapters, the refrain, verse 20? For instance, in chapter 4, the priest shall make for atonement for them, they shall be forgiven. Verse 26, the priest shall make atonement, he shall be forgiven. Verse 31, the priest shall make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. Verse 35, in chapter 5, verse 10, and 
verse 13, again and again and again, the priest shall make atonement and he shall be forgiven. What's the goal of this sacrifice? It's the same thing we need each and every time that we sin. It's forgiveness. It's atonement. Atonement is an older word that means exactly what it says. At one. Atonement. Being made at one with God. We need to be made one with the God against whom we have sinned. Remember how the blood was sprinkled on the very veil that symbolized his presence before the people of God? The, the guilt, the pollution of, this, of their sin has separated them from him. They, they need to be made at one with him again. For, for sin, sin cuts us off from our maker. It shows the difference between a holy God and a very unholy people. We need to have our sin forgiven, our guilt removed, our stain purified. No wonder blood as, as a symbol of cleansing was sprinkled and poured all over the place. The breach with the God who dwelt in that tabernacle needed to be bridged, needed to be held away with, done away with. People of God and their God needed to be made at one. Praise Him that He has made such a way for that to happen. You probably know the Hebrew word here for Atonement, it's Kippur. You probably heard of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement on the Hebrew calendar every fall. Scholars debate exactly what that word means. Is it, is it a ransom that is paid? Is it, is it a cleansing that is offered? Hopefully, as you've been listening to this sermon, you've realized that, that both are included, both are entailed in the, the offering of atonement of Kippur. It's a payment of a, of a ransom, a sacrifice to an offended party, God. But it's also a cleansing of guilt, of the weight of the punishment for the sins that we commit as we break his law. Because sin both endangers us, requiring ransom, but also pollutes, requiring purification. It endangers us because it provokes the wrath of a holy God. But the atoning ransom sacrifice appeases that God it pollutes as an intruder, a, a cancer, a scourge, a stench. Now again we see why the, the hands had to be laid upon the animal, don't we? All of his guilt, all of his filthiness was transferred to the bull or the goat or the bird or, or even the handful of flour that was given in his place. If it was an animal, as the animal's blood was shed, his sin was taken away. It was atoned for. The guilt removed as the animal, perfect animal, without blemish, died in his place. And in the case of the priest or the whole congregation, that, that animal was then taken outside the camp, exiled to the place of disgrace, far away from the tabernacle as possible. And that's a sign, isn't it? That's a symbol. That, that represents for us in a way that is, that is clear for all to see that the guilt is taken away, removed, far as possible. The shame, gone. The tabernacle and the worshiper, purified. Fellowship with God, restored. Because as this text makes clear, the sin was forgiven. And when we are forgiven by God, that sin is done away with once and for all. 
He'll never come back again and say, oh, by the way, I don't think we have dealt with that sin enough. Let's, let's rehash it. Let's bring it back up. Well, let's find more ways in which you were guilty for that one sin. No, when it is forgiven, it is forgiven. It is taken outside the camp. It is burned up. So what have we seen in our second point? We've seen God's people sin against him unintentionally from weakness or ignorance. They're made aware of their sin by others or by remembrance or by God. They, they confess and they offer a sacrifice through a priest based on their status in the community and that which they can afford. And as a result, their sin is paid for, their guilt removed, their uncleanness washed away. Friends, do you see the mercy on offer here? Do you see the grace of a God who does not let sin get the last word? We know that God was well within his rights to not offer such a sacrifice. To say, when my people sin against me, they have breached this relationship. They have cut themselves off from me. They are and are worthy of death. That's the end. But this very presence of this chapter here in this text tells us that for God, he was far more interested in healing that breach of relationship. He was far more interested in removing that guilt. He was far more interested in making atonement and making his people at one with him. And if you're wondering what that means for you, who has offered no bowl or goat or lamb here this morning, brings us to our third and final point this morning. How can we have our sins forgiven? Brothers and sisters, friends, it's the exact same way. It's the exact same way. I, I mentioned the three things in which the, the sinner in this text did. The first thing he did was what? Offered a prayer of confession. He, he's made aware of his sins, first of all. The text tells us that perhaps he remembered, or perhaps someone came to him and pointed out his sin to him. So first, let's think about how, how, do we, how, do we, how are we made aware of our sins? In many different ways. Perhaps you wondered, as, as you've uh, come to worship, there's been a, a prayer of confession that seems awfully specific. You're wondering, why is this prayer so specific? You know, does, does the pastor just want to rub things in this week? Or, or is he just, you know, glorying all these different kinds of sins? No. Uh, you know, a prayer of confession reminds us that there might be sins that we haven't even realized that we've committed this week. That as we come and, and a helpful prayer, you know, brings those to mind is so that we can offer them to the Lord and have them forgiven. Or, or in, in Scripture, why do the apostles like to list sins? It's not simply because they want to share different ways that the people have been saved from those sins, so that is part of it. It's also to make us aware of the ways in which we may sin and not, again, realize it. Our very catechisms of our faith will often go through the Ten Commandments and explicate those commandments to let us know the ways in which we need to be cleansed. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts using those prayers in that scripture, using even our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it is fitting and proper when, when you see a brother or sister in sin to go to him or to her, not, not vindictively, not, not simply out of a, a sense of judgmentalism, but to allow that brother or sister in Christ to be aware of that sin so he or she can offer it to the Lord and be forgiven. Because you desire his relationship with the Lord to be healed, to be strengthened. 
to be made deeper in awareness of what Christ has done for that person. And when we are made aware of that sin, as chapter 5, verse 5 tells us, we confess it. Because now that we know the sin, now that we know, we think, think, of, think of a way in which you learn that you've offended somebody and you, you didn't realize it. You think, oh no, I, I thought I was just you know, answering an email as I always do, but now I've offended that person. I've I got to fix it. You know, I, I, want, I want to have healing. I've I got to go to that person and confess what I've done and apologize and seek healing. Well, how much more so with God? We, we come to him when we are made aware of our sin because we desire cleansing. We desire healing of relationship. And, and frankly, we do so because we're confident that he will hear us. Sometimes with your friend, you don't know. I mean, maybe I've messed this up forever. But the Apostle John tells us that when we sin, 1 John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Did you see there in that text both, both aspects of this sacrifice? He forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness and cleansing from sin. But there in 1 John, the apostle also tells us how this is possible. How does this forgiveness and cleansing come to us who have offered no animal sacrifice here this morning? Well, just two verses previous in that chapter, the apostle tells us it's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Just as in Leviticus 4, it was the blood of the sacrifice. So for us, it is the blood of Christ. Because just as the first two steps were the same, being made aware of our sin, confessing our sin, the third step is actually the same too. Sacrifice. But not a new one. Not not the best of your flock, or the best of your flower, the best of your turtle doves or pigeons. No, it's the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you. He has been sacrificed once for all time. Take away all the sins of his people. And when you offer a prayer of confession of your sin to the Lord, you don't say, Lord, what do I have to do to make this right? You say, Lord, what have you done to make this right? You've given me your son. You have sent your son willingly to this earth to live a perfect life for me. To, to believe that that sacrifice without blemish, without blame, that he may be offered up, that his blood can sprinkle not physical items, but my very heart, the place of the dwelling of God, that I may be at one with him forever. This cleansing, this, this forgiveness, this at-oneness, this atonement, this removal of guilt and shame was accomplished for you 2,000 years ago at the cross. In God's mercy to you, he has not let sin, he has not even let you get the last word. Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, God has condemned sin in the flesh. In the blood of in the flesh of Christ. 
sin was done away with once and for all. That sin will never come back to bring more guilt upon your head. Sometimes we remember sin more than God does. <laughs> we feel like we have to make self-atonement again and again and again for the very same sin. But God said that was done away with. That, that the perfect sacrifice of Christ was made once and for all. Hebrews 1.3 tells us He has made purification for sins. You're cleansed. You are forgiven. We are not here to beat ourselves up. We are here to revel in what Christ has done for us. Hebrews 9 tells us He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. A single sacrifice for sin. Chapter 10 of Hebrews verse 12 tells us. Put away forever. No more sacrifice needed. Simply faith. Simply relying upon that one sacrifice. Coming back again and again and again to the cross. An empty tomb. Just as a, a sacrificer's sin was transferred to that animal. So your sin was transferred to Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that for our sake he made him who knew no sin. Him who, who was that perfect, blameless, without fault sacrifice. He made him to be sin. Our sin. Transferred to him. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The pure, cleansing righteousness of God. This is the hope for all who would come to Christ Jesus in faith. All of his people, all who call upon him can know that they are part of that one people of God who have been forgiven by Christ. For in this text, remember how the, the, the sacrifice for the entire congregation was taken outside the camp and burned? So Hebrews tells us that the bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the holy places to the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus offered also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. And the exhortation the writer to the Hebrews tells us is, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let us run to him, for with him we have forgiveness. We have atonement. We have cleansing. We have purification. He has paid for your sin when his blood flowed all over the place as it did in Billy Graham's sermon. It flowed for you, his people. You have forgiveness. You have atonement. You have cleansing. You have life because of his death. Let us pray. Father God, we're so thankful that in every chapter of your holy scripture we find our Savior. Even in a chapter like this that we may on our own may not read every morning when we wake up, but it reveals for us our Savior. It reveals for us your Son. We just pray that He would be exalted and honored and glorified as we revel in what He has done for us. May we know you through Him. Thank you that you have made that way possible. You have accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. That all is left for us to do is to, to rest, to rely upon him in faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.